You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Warning! This podcast contains spoilers for the limited series Moon Knight on Disney+, Plus, the film Everything Everywhere All at Once, plus various theories that we have for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Miss Marvel that we think are right. Hello! My name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep, deep, into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode on the previously on, we will cover the newest trailers for Miss Marvel, plus Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and that little extra, extra footage and some new trailer action there, and we will recap Moon Knight episode two, Some in the Suit. In the airlock, we will dive deep into A24's newest sci-fi rollick, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is a really fun, super fun movie. In the hive mind, we will discuss that movie with the Daniels, as they are known. That is the writer-director duo Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, who created and directed Everything Everywhere All at Once. In the internet out, a uh, listener will tell us about the creative partnership between Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. And in the end game, Rosie and I will recommend some Hong Kong movies for folks to see before or after or whenever they see Everything Everywhere All at Once. Joining me today to do all of that is the greatest, the best, the writer, the comics historian, the comics creator. We're talking about the only, the number one, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are oh, you? Oh, hi. It's so nice <laughs> to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How how are things? What's going on? How are you? Yeah, I'm alive. You know, I'm doing <laughs> lots of Marvel things happening. So we're There's staying so busy, much you know, the huge. But yeah, excited to dig into all this stuff, especially everything, everywhere, all at once, because it's oh, so good. so fun. So, 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 so good. good. Let's get into the news. First up, news and recap. Okay, first up, some news that we can file under. Unfortunate, Warner Brothers is hitting pause on all Ezra Miller-related projects. This is a story that appeared in Rolling Stone, and it's a little bit amorphous in terms of like what exactly is getting paused, but we can we can guess that the, the Flash movie will be paused. According to Rolling Stone, on March 30th, Warner Brothers and DC execs held an impromptu meeting to discuss Ezra's future with the studio following the Flash star's recent arrest for disorderly conduct and harassment in Hawaii. According to a knowledgeable source, the consensus in the room was WB's hitting that pause button on any future projects involving Miller, including possible appearances in the extended DC Cinematic Universe. The studio has more than a year before it has to make any hard decisions about a potential sequel to The Flash. Uh, Warner Brothers has avoided making any key decisions on tent poles ahead of Discovery, taking control of Warner Media in a $43 billion mega, 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 mega merger. Um, this is unfortunate. I hope that Ezra is doing okay. And I hope they're getting the help that they need uh, in this time because it, it appears that that may be the case. And certainly, Rosie, like, 
it wouldn't be too hard should WB want to do this if they were just like, oh, uh, the Flash had to return to the, uh, you know, to the Speed Force and yeah, here's, here's Wally, Wally West. West. There's there's many different Flashes if they need BB. I hope Ezra is getting the help they need. This is something that I feel like is not really surprising. If you've yeah. been following Ezra's last few years, it seems like they've been struggling. And I think the report said that the filming of The Flash, there was some right. stuff was some that chaotic, happened during that right. that kind of hinted this. So Not necessarily like toxic or 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 no. like abusive behavior, but like erratic, I think it was the way they termed it. Yeah, behavior that made people worried for Ezra. Yes. But not worried enough to do anything till now, so I'm glad they're doing something right. now. Right. So hopefully Ezra's uh, getting that help. Next up, uh, Miss Marvel's fantasy teaser trailer, which is super fun, uh, to uh, set to the uh, the iconic weekend song, Blinding Lights, always uh, certainly like... <laughs> A weird choice to be like, let's set a uh, teen sci-fi comic book adventure to one of the most notorious like cocaine soundtracks of recent years. But that is what they have done. We continue to believe that uh, the powers that Kamala uh, is displaying are due to the quantum bands, right? What do you think, Rosie? I definitely think so. They kind of, they really highlight the idea of this cosmic nature. There's this moment when she's like, you know, I spend too much time in fantasy land and they've got the Carol Danvers suit in a museum flying through space. And then she puts the bands on, which she finds in, it looks, we talked about this briefly at South by Southwest, but like in this trailer, it seems more obvious that she finds the bands in a trunk that Mm. seems to be in her house. So maybe there's some kind of familial connection there. And then, yeah, her powers look like energy manipulation powers. She can manipulate things around her molecules that would fit in with the quantum bands so i think we're we're pretty safe to guess that it's going to be those or a version of those maybe the nega bands or maybe they'll call them something else like the marvel bands because they're from Cree, like they're Cree connected so it will be interesting to see there is of course i think the identities of like the four mysterious like beings that are walking out of like a fog in an alleyway Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think Fog and the origin of yeah. this character, and I think these are the Inhumans, perhaps walking out of a Terrigen Mist metaphor. Or right? Something like they that. really want people to think of the Terrigen Mist. I definitely really have more than <laughs> yeah. more than one message being like, "Is this the Terrigen Mist?" And I'm like, I feel like they're probably just playing with us. But I saw some really interesting stuff. Yeah, Inhumans definitely a high up one. I think a lot of people when they first saw the clip, they were like, "Oh, is it the Netflix Defenders? Yeah. Like, could this be them?" But I think that we were probably onto something. There's some kind of alien group probably mm. trying to get the quantum bands back. Could be allies, like the protectors of the universe. Or they sure, could that'd be, be cool. They could be like scrolls. We're getting into that territory. We are getting into that territory. We should add uh, what that is a reference to. So uh, this character, uh, Kamala Khan, as uh, Ms. Marvel made her uh, first appearance in Captain Marvel number 14, August 2013. And this was a period of time in, like, Marvel slash MCU history when it did not appear there would be any way to uh, bring the X-Men and mutants into the fold Mm -hmm. in the movie side. Like, it certainly seemed like a long-range and possibly long-shot chance. And so... Uh, this was uh, there was an attempt on the comic side to basically like raise up the Inhumans to be uh, like the mutants that they could use in the movies, yeah. and 
uh, inhumans, they're an alien race, they get their powers by being exposed to this uh, this uh, mixture, this chemical, the pterogen mist, that activates, in certain hu- inhumans, activates their genetic structure, and they develop these powers that are unique to them. And uh, around this time, this, uh, this storyline kicked off with a pterogen bomb essentially being, like, detonated over New York and turning like, a whole bunch of uh, people that had no idea they had uh, mm-hmm. inhuman DNA into uh, super beings, and Ms. Khan was one of them. So that's what this is kind of a Yeah, that to. seems what it kind of aligns with. And in a classic kind of Marvel licensing kerfuffle, because of them not being able to use the X-Men, there was like this side effect that was written in where like terrogenesis or the terrogen mist, it would kill mutants. So right. they were like, mutants don't matter anymore. Yeah, it's we're getting rid of inhumans. them. inhumans. And now... Obviously, if you've seen the f- series of Inhumans that was created by the pre-MCU Marvel TV, you will know that that probably isn't going to happen for a while. Though we may see Black Bolt, we think. We may see Black in, Bolt, certainly, in, in as a member of the Illuminati in Multiverse yeah. of Madness. Very, very possible. So it's an exciting time. But yeah, I do think we're onto something with the idea that Kamala is almost going to have a, a Green Lantern-style hero's journey here where she's selected or worthy to wear the quantum bands which would give her this mantle and enable her to kind of become the street level hero she's always wanted but with this little bit more of a cosmic twist now i wonder are they the nega bands or the quantum bands the quantum bands i guess they you know it'd be very easy to retcon them but i think the quantum bands and it's like man those are powerful but then again who knows uh, uh, it'll be really interesting to see. On yeah. to a new, uh, some new, other new trailer news. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness has a couple of recent uh, teaser trailers that have been released. Lots of similar footage. Uh, some of those highlights from both trailers. Of course, we get Strange and Wanda talking about the multiverse in an orchard. We see a glowing and very powerful figure that is maybe like an alt variant of Captain Marvel or who mm-hmm. do you think that person is? I still I still think that we are on the right track imagining that it's a version of Maria Rambo who mm-hmm. is Monica's mother in a from a universe where she became Captain Marvel when her and Carol were on the fated trip that gave Carol the powers. I think that's what we're seeing. I do like this idea that it's some kind of like Iron Man variant that's being played by Tom Cruise. It's just so out there that I'm open to it. And it would obviously link back to the the classic Hollywood legend that he was the original dream for Iron Man, you know, before Robert Downey Jr. Um, That has certainly that it is a variant Iron Man has certainly been out there as a thing that people are talking about. I don't quite see it, but it's certainly possible. I'm trying to think of an Iron Man suit with an open face. And I, I think there is, I think I saw people saying there was something, I think it was the chest that was really speaking to people, kind of the chest plate. I think they might have been thinking of like a Supreme. Yeah, like a Supreme. Yeah, that could be. It's it, The chest though looked to me like. The head sock looks like a Captain Marvel kind it of. It looks Captain Marvel-ish with the kind of yeah. like hair and energy like flowing out the top, but we will of course see. Um, other questions. Who... Who are Wong and Wanda fighting in the trailer? There is like this rocky creature with red eyes, just like a multiversal baddie somehow. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, depending on which trailer you watch, sometimes it seems like it's fighting alongside them. 
Right. So it's kind of like, is this one of their multiversal people that Wong's kind of picked up on his little, you know, we already know he's training Abomination. Like, who else does he have in his monster pocket? Earning some (laughs) some side cash by, like, training and and, uh, fixing fights with his good friend Abomination. Yeah, and if we have Wanda and Wong fighting together alongside each other, then that opens up the question as well, which a lot of us have been wondering is, like, is it going to be that Wanda's going to have a heel turn or is right. there going to be two versions of Wanda, a Wanda who's fighting alongside us and then a Wanda who is the cause of whatever is happening? Let me throw a wild twist in there. Classic strange villain. We know we're going to Marvel horror at some point. You get that uh, end of the trailer with the kind of like multi-armed Shiva God of Death Strange. It's mm-hmm. very, very disturbing. And certainly Wanda is having a crisis of what to do in this movie. And as, as we saw in, uh, in WandaVision, uh, you know, much more powerful than anyone could have imagined. What if, what if the secret, like, villain pulling the strings, again, classic, classic strange yeah. uh, baddie, nightmare. I 100% am so glad you brought that up because trust me, if you watch this trailer and you watch the other trailers, I'm just saying. Count how many times they say nightmare. I'm just they saying. Are, we, we already, in Loki, there's a moment where Loki is talking to Mobius and he says something like, you know, oh, do you control nightmares too? And then Mobius yeah. is like, oh no, that's someone else. You know, and everyone, it seems like they're teasing it. And, you know, Nightmare actually debuted in a Doctor Strange comic. That's like a very classic foe. And I, and also there's been a lot of um, talk about like Sleepwalker and Sleepwalker connected uh, kind of characters. And Sleepwalker is actually the extra figure in this new Legends range for the Doctor Strange movie. So I think we are getting into that horror space. I think Nightmare would be, such a smart use of a deep cut Doctor Strange character. Tell the people, tell our, tell our, uh, our wonderful listeners who Nightmare uh, Let's is. Let's do it, maybe. We're assuming that like some evil Strange or evil Wanda or Wanda who's just like lost, kind of like the the her grip on right and wrong is the bad is the baddie. But like, what if what if it's not that? So so this is actually really really smart. We'll start from the beginning. Nightmare. He first debuted in Strange Tales 110, uh, created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, iconic Doctor Strange creators. He's the ruler of like like a dream dimension. Right. The the nightmare dimension. The nightmare dimension, right? Where you can like torment people in their dreams and control them. And that sounds 100% like a way that you could manipulate Wanda, making her relive the family that she lost tormenting her into doing your bidding and showing her a world where you could actually have something better. And that would directly connect to Sleepwalker. And I think a lot of people had, um, in one of the earlier trailers, America Chavez is looking into the kind of swirling mouth of this demonic character. And people were like, oh, that looks like something from uh, Sleepwalker, you know. Also, one of the other characters that Nightmare is most known for being like a primary antagonist to is Ghost Rider. That's right. So you would end up in this brilliant situation where it could be that true direct link to that Midnight Suns, Marvel Knights, straight horror. I just feel like they've been saying nightmare so much. Like seriously. I 
If you're doing a rewatch, watch the MCU TV shows, watch the trailers in the lead up to this, and you will hear people saying nightmare more than any normal person says nightmare. I have not seen other people say this. And honestly, I didn't think it until these last trailers when I was just like, God, where is the bad guy? Like, is it, it feels like, uh, what if it's nightmare? I let's put us put us down for if it put is us nightmare. Down for a nightmare. We called it. That was we Jason called was like, it. Baby. This happened. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go to our recap of Moon Knight episode two. Summon the suit, written by Michael Castellane and directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Uh, Stephen wakes up as usual, as per usual, feeling like absolute dog shit, leg chained to a post. Uh, He goes to work at the museum uh, and uh, remembering the events of the previous night, you know, the big kind of uh, kerfuffle with the monster dog and the and the fight that took place in the bathroom. He goes to talk to security. He's like, listen, I know the place is a mess, but like you got to check the security tape and you got to see what's on there because what happened is crazy. And they check the security tape and it's just Steven running around by himself and then wrecking the bathroom. Uh, so Steven, uh, and the tape, by the way, ends with Steven locking eyes with the, the security camera, um, you know, suggesting that he knows what he's doing. Like, he, yeah, he, and he's Steven doing can see in his yeah. reflection that it's not him. Yeah, he he's says, like, that's, that's not me. me. Uh, so, uh, you know, Steven is fired and they do him the, understandably the museum, uh, management does him a solid. They don't have him arrested. Uh, but Steven's boss does give him a brochure for, uh, what Steven admits looks like a posh mental health facility. Uh, Steven then goes to talk to his friend, uh, the street performer Crawley. And he says, listen, I don't know what's going on with me. I'm finding stuff hidden in my flat. What do I do? Crawley, of course, does not say anything, but Steven reacts as if Crawley gave him the idea of what to do next, which is find this mysterious storage locker in order to figure out Mm -hmm. what is going on with him and prove to everyone that what's going on with him is real. And it takes a lot of searching, but Stephen does find the locker. Uh, It is a very huge walk-in, like, a storage facility-style locker that's being used as a safe house. Clearly, it's filled with all this kind of, like, military-looking gear, weapons, cash, cot for sleeping, a passport in the name of Mark Spector with Stephen's picture, and a golden scarab, which Stephen immediately susses out as, like, a compass of some kind. Stephen then has a conversation with Mark in the reflection on the wall, and uh, Stephen's like, what the fuck are you? And Mark is like, listen, just let me control the body for a little while. And then Mark tells Stephen that he, Mark, is the avatar of Khonshu, the Egyptian god of the moon, uh, which means Stephen is as well since they share this body. And Mark has some kind of deal with Khonshu that needs to be honored. Stephen tries to flee with a duffel bag full of spy shit in the hopes that he can get himself locked up. He's like, look at all this illegal shit I have. Please lock me up. Kanchu then appears, Stephen is terrified, and Kanchu demands that Stephen hand the body over, and Stephen runs away right into the arms of the mysterious Layla, who is now here in London, and she found it by tracking Stephen's phone. Uh, she's annoyed because she's like, uh, I haven't heard for you for weeks, and when she says you, she means Mark. Uh, and she's like, listen, I know you have the suit, whatever that means. Like, I know you have the suit and that would have kept you safe, but I'm so worried. Like, where have you been? And also we're married. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, we're married. By the PS, we're married. And Steven's like, oh, interesting. Let's go to my apartment. Uh, Mark tells Steven 
listen, you got to get rid of Layla. She's in danger. The more you talk to her, it's going to get worse for her. Layla, meanwhile, is like, why are you speaking like in an English accent? And why are you conversing in French? What is happening? Uh, Layla also knows some ancient Egyptian history. She's clearly like an Egyptologist herself. Uh, she gives Stephen uh, some papers that she says, oh, you, Mark, wanted these papers. You didn't sign them and they are divorce papers. And Stephen's like, wait, hold on a second. Uh, you are an Egyptologist. You're mysterious. Uh, not, you know, you're pretty easy on the eyes. Do we, do I really want to get divorced right now? Even though I don't, I just found out I was married. I literally never met you. I literally never met you before. And Stephen is like, hold on, do I actually want to sign these divorce papers? (laughs) As a show of trust, Stephen is about to show Layla Mark's duffel bag full of spy shit. But Mark is like, don't. That's dangerous. Layla then uh, shoves Stephen aside and, and goes to the bag, finds the scarab. And now she thinks Mark is double crossing her. She's like, we've been doing all this stuff together and here you are, you have the scarab and you didn't tell me about it. We've been like doing all these crazy things in order to find this thing and now you have it and you haven't said anything. Uh, and also that the scarab uh, points the way to Amit. We now, we we are learning more and more. Uh, take it. Steven's like, take it. Listen, I'm not Mark Spector. I work in a gift shop. Uh, it's like, I, see, like I, I need help because I'm in danger. I don't remember anything that's ever happening. Uh, yada, 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 all this crazy stuff. And there's knock on the door. And it's the cops. It is DC's Fitzgerald and Kennedy. They come in. I guess the laws are different there, right, Rosie? Like, you don't even uh, have to, like, there's you know no, you can just come in. You you can and you can't. If somebody opens the door, you you uh, you're putting yourself in a bad situation. They're not technically supposed to do that, but also, as we later find out, that probably they're, not right. real cops. They're maybe? probably not real. Right. Also, Stephen, he just does whatever anyone tells him. He's quite That's passive the, in his life. Is one hundred percent correct. So uh, they look around. They seem to be searching for someone who isn't Stephen. Layla has slipped out the window. She's on the roof. Fitz and Kennedy find the Mark Specter passport. They take Stephen in. They, as they're driving him to, we think, the police station, they run the name Mark Spector, discover out that he's a mercenary who recently raided a dig site and murdered an archaeologist, which is very much in line with the uh, yeah. comics origin of, of Moon Knight. Uh, then Fitz and Kennedy stop at a place that is clearly not a police station. And Stephen looks, he's asking for help. And the person who he's asking, he looks and sees that they have a, a scale of justice tattoo. Uh-oh, this is the cult of Amit. And I am in the clutches of Arthur Harrow. Yes, Harrow is here. He seems to know everything that's going on. He knows about Conchu. He knows about Mark Spector. He knows about the voices. He even seems to know, like, what Conchu is saying to Stephen, like, in the moment. He's like, oh, is Conchu uh, telling you to kill me? Is that what he's telling you to do right now? <laughs> um, so Harrow is like, let me make you a pitch. Here's this. Let me, Stephen, I know a lot's going on. Let me make you a great pitch. Okay? Check out this neighborhood. Look at This was, used to be a really terrible like crime-ridden neighborhood in the middle of London, okay? Once the most dangerous street slash neighborhood in the entire city, which means on the scale of things, like not a bad neighborhood because it's London, <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right, it's really not that big a deal. It's not that bad. But it is now a peaceful urban utopia where it's like free food and like people uh, frolicking in the streets and goats running around free. This is fantastic. And look, at people of all... The races and ages and from various countries around the globe, they found peace here in London. It's all because of uh, what I am offering. And I'm here to tell yeah. you, Stephen, Conchu. You just got to kill some people. You just got to kill some people because Conchu, he's a bad guy. He's a manipulator. He preys on people with a strong moral compass and he mm-hmm. like sways them. Gods have no respect for Conchu. They have banished him, in fact. They don't like him. 
Uh, Harrow, in fact, tells Stephen, I was the previous Moon Knight. I know what I'm talking about. I used to work for this guy. And in order to truly bring justice to the wrongdoers of the world, here's what I'm going to do. Like, if you care about uh, bringing justice to the wrongdoers, as Kanshi wants, here's here's my version of that. We resurrect Amit. Amit will tear up evil root, branch, and stem around the world. And then Stephen is like, uh, she's a crocodile goddess, isn't she? She's, this, like, sounds a lot like mass murder and genocide stuff, right? And Harold's like, don't worry about it. Just give me the scarab so I can find Amit and kill everyone who has ever had an evil thought. <laughs> now, at the word uh, scarab... Harrow's people all turn their attention to Stephen and Harrow. Arthur uh, wants everyone to be judged by Amit. Like, and again, it's it's clearly going to be like a mass murdery thing. And he says, listen, whatever deal that Mark and you, Stephen, have with Kanchu, Kanchu's lying about it. He always has some other thing that he wants. And which, as we go through this episode, it's clear that Kanchu also like whatever's going on with Arthur Harrow, clearly a bad guy and clearly is like his philosophy is like mass murder for people who think bad thoughts. Yeah. That said, Kanshu also like very dicey, very yeah, dodgy I mean, fellow. And that's definitely like part of the the Moon Knight mythos is this idea of like, well, Kanshu kind of took this guy by force. There's not right. like a consensual like situation. He He took, he takes these avatars and he makes them do the things that he wants them to do. And, and he try and like, you know, how often do we hear him say stuff like, break his windpipe. Yeah, break his windpipe. Abrams, amazing. Do it. Dulcet tones, yeah. you know? So yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot, everyone's, everyone's struggling with that Egyptian god. Steven's like, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds like very, that sounds like a sprinkling of genocide to me. I'm not sure. Harrow then threatens Mark with his cane, which he says is imbued with the power of Amit. And I need to ask this because as I was uh, watching again this morning, so uh, Harrow has embedded some kind of glowing thing in his cane and he takes the cane and kneels before it and in, 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 encants some sort of uh, saying and then everything glows purple and a big portal opens and then a, a, a monster dog comes out. But I have to ask... We've talked a lot about this being like an alternate version of the multi of the the standard MCU multiverse, mm -hmm. and that like there are different. It's possible that there are different multiversal versions of this person who is Mark Spector slash Stephen Grant and others who are collapsing onto this one body. What I, I I see like purple, and I think Infinity Gem Power Stone. Is it possible that this is like a, a variant? universe power stone i always think about that kind of stuff we know that the tva in loki we saw multiple powers gems that were just in the drawer you yeah. know and they were useless they were basically paperweights because they weren't in the right universe the universes had been pruned also i feel like it wouldn't be hard to if this is in the main mcu you know i think some people spotted like a grc bus sign which still wouldn't mean it has necessarily yeah. has to be the uh, same mcu because I'm sure the blip happened in multiple places. But um, it could also just be like a chip of the Power Stone. The, the Infinity Gems consistently find a way to come back yes, and be resurrected. Yes. And, and there is a chance that the, version, the stones that Thanos hunted down were not the original ones. I mean, if somebody was going to have them, it would make a lot of sense that it was a deity thousands of years ago. Yeah. You know, especially one from a culture that deeply understood the cosmos and the stars. I, and and they know what they're doing. It's like the they know what they're fog. doing when they do a shiny purple thing. 
the way it's in his cane, it's very reminiscent of like the way Ronan the Accuser like put the the power stone into his whatever you mace or whatever. It who knows, but it it made me think of that. Art yeah, continue. I think it's interesting as well because like in the MCU, something that we're seeing a lot from the very earliest days because of the gems, but something that's continued is this idea of artifacts. And yes. I think that the idea of it being more of a physical component in the cane rather than just like there's some magic. It seems to go along a lot more with what they're doing. You know, even Doctor Strange, we've seen that Chiwetel as a Baron Mordo, he's going to have, you know, a, a sword that looks like it lights up. Yes. There's all different kinds of artifacts. We've got the ebony blade in Eternals. So artifacts are going to be a big part of this. And also as well, Con- like Harrow was the original avatar, or he says he was the original avatar of Konshu. So he is someone who would probably have had access to multiple artifacts, not just yes. this first scarab, which is kind of the MacGuffin of this series. Speaking of the scarab, guess who has it? It's Layla. And here's uh, Layla, just as Harrow is interrogating Stephen to try and figure out where the scarab is. Layla is like, Stephen, you got to summon the suit. Uh, and a big fight breaks out. Harrow casts a spell, summons the demon dog. Uh, Stephen falls out of window. And as he's falling, he manages to summon... A suit, but not he summons the suit, a the, suit. A suit, thus saving his life, and it's the uh, Mister Knight version of the Moon Knight suit, which is like a kind of white three-piece suit with a very form-fitting mask. Um, not the not the OG Conshu number. Mark's reflection that is talking to Stephen is just confu- as confused as Stephen is. Stephen and the monster dog fight. Uh, but this is all invisible to Layla and everyone else. Only Steven can really see the dog that he is fighting. Steven gets hit by a car and Mark takes control. Mark dons the classic Moon Knight suit, beats the absolute fucking brakes off this dog, impales it on a spire. Mark then desuits and is like checking his pockets like, where I put that scarab? Scarab's gone. He dropped it. Harrow finds it. It was in the possession of just some random guy who Harrow quickly kills. Steven uh, then talks to Mark from the reflection. He's like, this sucks being in the reflection and not being like the main <laughs> person in control. How long have you been doing this? And, and Mark is like, for quite a while, actually, like a long time. Uh, Steven is like, can I have the body back? And uh, he tries to take the body back by force. Mark uh, does not relinquish it. He says, and here we get some important information. Something has changed in the in the relationship they have. They used to be separated, and it used to be more balanced, but now whoever is in control has more power and is more dominant than once than once was the case. Uh, Stephen blames uh, Mark for everything bad that everything ha- ever happened in his life. And Mark is like, listen, uh, I'll, I'll get out of your hair once I repay my debt to Conchu. I will leave. I will split. And that's it. I just have to pay the price to Conchu, whatever it is he needs. And also, like, it, it, just keep Layla out of this because Conchu wants uh, Layla as my replacement, Mark says. Mm-hmm. I got to ask, so this waxing and waning of who the most powerful is in the comics – for a period of time, Moon Knight's strength, like physical strength, waxed and waned with the moon. He was most he was strongest when there was a full moon. Are yeah. we seeing some kind of version of that now with with this dynamic uh, of like now whoever's in control is more powerful for reasons that we don't know? I, I would be interested to see where they're going with it. I think it kind of adds to that theory that we had that we might not be seeing them necessarily going with a solely uh you know, represent solely a representation of like dissociative identity disorder because the idea that an alter could leave 
yeah. and just has a choice to do that. But it does, it kind of really reminds me as well, like I think you're really onto something with the waxing and waning and kind of that strength. Also that would tie into Werewolf at Night and those kind of horror yeah. connections, this this connection of the moon, maybe that's why he has to find Jack Russell or whichever werewolf we'll see to, to help him. But also it kind of reminds me more, well, the version that Mark tells him about, that reminds me kind of of those original like older Moon Knight comics where they were more like personalities that he could put on. Yes. To, were, he, he could Disguises, choose. essentially. Yeah, they yeah. were essentially like disguises, but because he could define the personalities and he felt like each one was separate, he was very believable. And that kind of sounds like what they had and what they have now is more of that sliding in and out of control that we've seen in, in the newer comics. So I'm really interested to see where they go with it, especially because, and I know like me and you have talked about this a lot, not on the show, but like the choice to make the Mr. Knight suit a manifestation of the yeah. suit for Steven rather than its own unique personality is a huge diversion from the comics. And that yeah. kind of, that hints at some really interesting stuff. I agree. Khonshu then appears as Mark and Steven are hashing it out. Uh, Khonshu takes uh, Mark to the woodshed rhetorically, that is, for, you know, essentially changing whatever deal it was they had. Don't forget, he says, I saved your life. And this is hearkening back again to the comics origin of the character in which Mark Spector dies. This is the this is the original origin story where Mark Spector wounded uh, dies or is about to die under the statue of Khonshu in this uh, ancient Egyptian temple and then Khonshu uh, saves his life in return for Mark becoming his avatar on Earth and that later has been retconned several times but that was the original that was the original origin story and it seems like they're referencing that here. Mm -hmm. Khonshu then tells Mark hey, Harrow has the scarab and uh, listen, we can go we, we should go get it and but listen, if you don't want to go get it and you don't want to be my avatar on Earth, my Moon Knight, um, I've got a I've got a great uh, potential candidate after you uh, named Layla. So guess where you're going? You're going to Egypt to stop Arthur Harrow from finding Amit. And we're on to episode three. Any questions that you have? Any like lingering concerns, theorizing stuff that stuff that you're thinking about as you watch this? I'm definitely very interested to see. What happens with the Mark, Stephen, how many other personas we're going to get? Because this is the second episode. And in the comics, you know, we, ha we haven't seen Jake Lockley yet, who's right. another primary. We know now Mr. Knight is not going to be its own separate personality, where in the comics, the Declan Shalvey, like Warren Ellis, he was they were the ones who built on the character. The, the, the original suit was drawn uh, by Michael Lark, who gets thanked in this episode. But Shalvey and... Um, and his collaborator, I'll say, <laughs> they they created that character as a, essentially like a, a professional face of Moon Knight. So that mm. was a different personality who could interact with the cops, who could be kind of this interloper between the different worlds that the, the alters all inhabited. So I think to kind of see it here is like, and I did think it was, I, I like to see someone getting used to a superpower. That's like one of my favorite things to watch. So it was nice yeah. to see Steven kind of trying to find it out. But that to me says, they're really going to veer off the path of what we're necessarily kind of expecting. Um, I really like Layla. I think the actress I think she's is great. great. She's definitely my favorite thing about the show. So I'm really excited to kind of see more where they're going with that. And I think this episode where we learn that she's also an Egyptologist, an adventurer, an archaeologist, that leans into what we were talking about from the last episode, which was 
the idea of her maybe being a recontextualization or the daughter of or related to the one of the few Marvel Egyptian characters called the Scarlet Scarab. So I'm really excited to see if we get some kind of ever, like exploration of that. Yeah, same here. I keep thinking like, okay, if this is indeed taking place in an alternate you mm-hmm. know, Marvel uh, reality, right? Who or what is the thing that gets pulled into the main 616 quote unquote MCU. And I think that it would be Layla if it's anybody. Yeah. Right. Either that as feels that, that way. Is, right. Either is either is like Disney Plus version of mm-hmm. uh, Scarlet Scarab or Disney Plus version of like Moon Knight yeah. once well, you know, I was Oscar, Oscar I Isaac great idea. moves away on his con- other contractual obligations. Well, we know that he didn't sign the so called golden handcuffs allegedly, right. according to I think it was a variety article, he signed just for this season. So that means that whatever it sets up, you know, it will be very interesting to see who makes it through to the wider MCU and what they do. I mean, if Conchu's already looking at Layla as his avatar, maybe that's something that we see. Maybe she actually chooses to do that, to save Mark and Steven. You know, she's definitely got big, like, Evie from the Mummy energy. Like, she is the real hero to this, like, (laughs) himbo guy. Yes. And the... Yeah, and also Saul, like, Saul just added something that I think is, like, let's talk about the phone calls to Stephen's mom. Like, is that Stephen's mom? Layla says here, Layla's like, oh, you're talking to your mom again, so the implication is Mark wasn't talking to her. I've always been very interested, like, who is he on the phone to? Is it actually his mom? Is he calling one of his other alters? Like, is he calling? I think there's something really interesting there. And, oh, also, I read a lot of Moon Knight comics over the weekend, surprising nobody. Um, yes, same here. <laughs> <laughs> and like shock, shock twist. Rosie read a comic, but there is. I think that this episode definitely leans into one of our favorite theories, which is: um, is the museum something that was actually Some created kind of pre- by Spectre Corp? Right. Could Mark be behind it? Could Stephen be behind it? Is his bumbling persona kind of to to trick people? Because we had Donna last week, and this week we get to know JB a little bit more. Um, who is the security guard who sits behind this huge screen of TVs yeah. that very much evokes the the man behind the screen. And in the Moon Knight Mark Spector comics from the 90s, where Spectre Corp is a large part, there is a character called Junior Birdman, who is known as JB, who is a hacker. And that, alongside the Donna thing, I feel like is very mm. evocative. Even if they're just doing another little thing with Hawkeye, I feel like they want us to be having these conversations. They know this is why fans find this stuff fun. And I think the fact that as Stephen got closer to learning the truth about Mark, he got fired from the museum. I think that's really right. interesting. Like yeah. the museum wasn't useful anymore. So I, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to kind of explore going into episode three. Well, we will be continuing to cover Moon Knight. Up next, when we're back, a discussion of uh, the wonderful film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
All right, we're stepping out of the airlock and into the mind-bending world of an IRS building to discuss the 824 <laughs> sci-fi action comedy masterpiece that is Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's opening wide today, this Friday, April 8th. And if you like the movies and you want to have a good time at the movies uh, that is action-packed and really heartfelt and, like, uplifting, too, like, not violent mm-hmm. in a way that's, like, oh, this is, like, really entertaining, but I feel bad, like, watching 50 headshots in a row, <laughs> you will not feel that way about this movie. It has an incredible cast. Michelle Yeoh, the absolute uh, legend. Ki Hu Kwan uh, as Wayman Wang, back in the game again in front of the camera. Uh, Stephanie Su as Joy, uh, James Hong, the legend James Hong, Jamie Lee Curtis, and more. Uh, really fun movie. We'll keep it. Well, we, this is like a spoiler conversation. It's, oh, let's talk I think about it's, it. it's spoilery, but we're not going to go like full recap. We're yeah. just going to kind of talk about it. So I just loved, I loved this movie. You know, for everyone complaining that like there are, this too many comic book movies. Everything's a Marvel movie or or a DC tie-in or something like that. I guess you know uh, people would still criticize this movie for uh, you know depending heavily on the multiverse for uh, for its uh, plot uh, momentum. That said, it is just like so original in the way yeah. it deals with it and the imagery it uses. It is so funny, um, and then like to have. You know, an all Asian cast as your, you know, the uh, as your kind of like the crux of the movie and their feelings about each other, their kind of disappointments with each other, um, their miscommunications. It's three generations of a family. Um, it, it was just like felt really good to see. And then the, the crowd that I saw with, I saw it uh, here in L.A. It was clear that somebody somebody worked on the movie in my theater because like people started cheering when the credits rolled like randomly at a random place. So like, I love uh, that. It was really, really, really great energy. What did you think of the movie? Yeah. I I absolutely loved it. Like I went to go and see it with a big group of friends after we went to this amazing uh, black kind of flea market called black market flea. So it was just like a very good day. And that I saw it in LA too, and it was in a huge cinema. We couldn't go to the IMAX, but we saw it in this, the biggest screen we could see it that wasn't IMAX. And people were reacting like it was a Marvel movie. Like it was, <laughs> I couldn't have seen it with a better, like things were happening and people were like, yeah, nah, <laughs> just like screaming. And I was just like, this is so incredible. Because on the surface, if you describe what this movie is in a sentence, it's like Michelle Yeoh is a kind of late middle-aged woman who runs a laundromat and she's doing her taxes and Jamie Lee Curtis is her IRS lady and she's evil and it's kind of this like dreary middle age where she's thinking like what could I have done with my life and she's pulled into this crazy multiversal kind of war where she has to use every version of herself to gain the skills she needs to beat this mysterious bad guy Joe Butabaki and it sounds so outrageous (laughs) but like I watched that movie And it felt like it was the most accessible thing in the world. I think it's that balance, like you talked about, this idea of this intergenerational uh, Asian storytelling, this cast just full of absolute legends. And it it is this bonkers movie where there's 50 versions of Michelle Yeoh, which, by the way, who didn't want that? That's like the dream movie. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also like this really intimate niche story about like intergenerational misunderstandings and cycles of like familial emotional trauma. Yeah. And uh, Ki Ha Kwan is just like so incredible. He's, yeah. He's like, 
I kept thinking that it's like actually criminal that this actor could not find work for as long as he could not find work in front of the camera. He is so engaging. He's just like has a lightness and a charm to him that is all the more impressive for the fact that he does some real like impressive and authentic like martial arts stunt work that is like high, high level stuff. But this is like... That's the other thing about this movie, which is why I think so far the the screenings and, and the, the the limited release have been really successful. And I hope the wide releases too, because I feel like this, people say this stuff, but this is literally a movie that has something for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Feeling does. depressed, nihilistic, wishing the world would end, it's for you. Feeling like you wish everyone was kinder to each other, also for you. Feeling like you just want to see loads of cool action sequences yes. that are completely outrageous and some of the best big screen Hollywood action that we've seen in years. Also for you. Want to see an intergenerational family story? Also for you. Need more queer people on your screen? Also for you. Like, it, it's got everything. And yeah, I mean, those action sequences are just... The choreography is unreal. It's like Hong Kong cinema. It makes you feel like you're watching, you know, a Shaw Brothers movie late night on the TV, but you're getting to see it beautifully, big screen, in this really unbelievable sci-fi context. It does something that really hits me on an emotional level, which is like, and I think the best stories do that, which is take some wild, you know, sci-fi mm-hmm. slash fantasy-esque concept, a multiverse, right, of multiple realities existing side by side. But like links it to something that is like really human, which is like regret about the way your life turned out. Yep. You know, who doesn't, who hasn't at a certain point in time been like, man, if I had done this. If mm-hmm. I had done that, I wanted all these things for myself when I was younger, earlier on, but then I made a bunch of decisions that were maybe foolhardy or not particularly thought out, or I was thinking emotionally with my heart when I should have been thinking with my brain. And now uh, here I am in middle age and I'm doing the, a thing that I don't want to do, Yeah, that it doesn't fulfill me like emotionally and I am in a relationship that maybe is not the most fulfilling and I don't have a great relationship with my kids. And maybe I wish I had done a bunch of things different. And this movie just on top of or underneath rather being like this kind of rollicking sci-fi multiversal adventure. It's really a story about like how but people can feel boxed in by the life that mm-hmm. they have led and how – you know, a core uh, experience, existential experience of just being a person is is wondering, man, what if I had done things differently? Yeah. And this movie lets the characters access um, all these different lives that they could have led. You know, like when when Evelyn manages to access the dimension in which she is a movie star, an international yeah. which movie was her star, dream, her dream, right? She. It comes to this place where she's like, man, I guess I shouldn't have run away with with my husband, Waymond, who I loved at one point in time. But like maybe that wasn't for the best. Maybe I should have chased my dream and I could have I could have been a, a, a international movie star like that. I want to stay there. Maybe I want to stay there. Uh, and that just felt like universal to me. Yeah. That's a universal dream, a universal fantasy that people have. There's something like incredibly honest and vulnerable about it too, where it's yeah. like admitting that there's maybe something you want that's more. And then kind of the realizations of of what that really means. Like the bit that really like, I just 
I mean, there's so many good bits in that world. Like we were talking about this, but like Waymond in that world when she accidentally bumps into yeah. him, it's very much his Wong Kar Wai in yeah. the mood for love kind of moment. And and Key is so brilliant. And you just think like, why isn't aren't these the roles he's been getting anyway? But in that world, the first thing Evelyn asks is, you know, where's Joy? Where's my daughter? Yeah. But she doesn't exist in that world. And it's those little moments where it's just like, ah, like these are the things, the pieces that come together, the the butterfly effect, you know, chaos yeah. theory. It's the little things that could change everything. And something else I love in the terms of that in this movie that I love in every movie, this is one of my favorite things in any movie from any era, is like the way that they show technology and they have so yeah. much fun with this kind of retro futuristic technology. I love that. It's so great. And the visuals are fun. And also like, I love the way that they literally do the chaos theory butterfly effect thing where like you'll see the one decision and then you get to see this kind of mapped out how everything changed. And I'm just like, well, it's like, it's a really cool visual, but it's really deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's you know, really on the, scary. On the one hand, that kind of like retro future hardware, like the the different kind of like verse jumping hardware that Waymond and the Alpha verse yeah. wears to like, and his crew wear to like keep track of what's going on. On the one hand, like, uh, I, I remember thinking it's great design, but also like it must have been great because like this is cheaper than like CG or making it yeah. look cool. But the other thing I was thinking did you ever watch The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai? Of course. It felt like that. It felt like a super weird, like, retro future take yeah. on a sci-fi movie that felt like, um, alongside all the different references, the Jackie Chan references, the Shaw Brothers references, the very the Wong Kar Wai references that are in this mm-hmm. movie, it also felt like it was pulling on that. What I think is actually like a super weird, not that good, kind of bad sci-fi movie from the 80s, but that is so unique in the way it looks. And that's what it reminded me of, the Buckaroo Banzai. There's like so many unbelievable kind of like draw things here. Like there's this uh, old South Korean movie from like 2003 called Save the Green Planet. And there's like something to that of the way his head looks. And there's like definitely those old 80s sci-fi, kind of the... uh, almost like the serialized like Flash Gordon costumes that you just pull on and you have to build, you know, the Rob Liefeld many pockets. Like there's a lot of pockets (laughs) in those universes. And like there's something so tangible. And I am a big proponent. I'm always the person who's like, I wish this was practical, you know, on the South by Southwest episode. I was like, if I could change one thing about the MCU, I'm like, fuck it. I'll just make it all practical. practical. I'd love to see what it would look like. But they do... They utilize practical and VFX in this movie in a way that feels very tangible and touchable and stylized, but also really slick. Like it doesn't feel, there's something very special about that balance in this movie that I think also comes from the nature of doing like so many in-camera stunts and so many unbelievable kind of, you have to have that balance of like, what can we you, how can we use VFX here to elevate what we're doing while still making it feel real and being able to to feel those punches? And I mean, the Waymond fight scene that where he oh, utilizes man. his fanny pack, that's going to go Wushu, down in cinema Wushu history. It absolutely is going to be. You know, I always rate, I always rate a movie, an action movie, in part by, uh, am I going to rewatch this scene at 1 yep. a.m. on YouTube randomly because it's like a random Wednesday night and I want to take a break from work? And, I, and the answer is 100% yes. I'm going to watch that. Yeah. I'm going to watch that fanny pack scene. I'm going to watch the Evelyn fight scene with Deirdre. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, there's going to be a bunch of stuff that I watch in this. Um, 
and I again I can't stress enough like how frenetic and mm-hmm. energetic the action scenes are. The the Daniels yeah. came up through music video and like there's a level of ADD-ness. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like it's looking into our ADHD brains. A hundred percent. Like their their most famous music video is the DJ Snake Little John classic turn down for what. So the action scenes are, are in a lot of ways like very reminiscent of mm-hmm. that with like you know like uh people being thrown through floors and yep. like uh so much action and comedy on the screen at the same time and incredible camera moves uh just a really 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 funny and original film in that way yeah and i think just shout out i believe they're called marshall club they're a group of youtubers who create like martial arts kind of stunt pieces in their own houses and that's who the Daniels found and brought on to kind of collaborate with them just unbelievable stuff when you watch it you sort of you can't really believe it it definitely is that rewatchable factor like afterwards I was like yes this is like it's like the scene in the raid where they get halfway up the building and Iko Uwe's starts doing Silla and uses his knife and takes out like 10 people in the corridor it's the corridor scene from old boy it's the John Wick, the first time that yeah. he shows his gun fu in the house when he's being invaded. The scenes where you're just like, oh, have you seen this? And you don't necessarily have to show the whole movie, but this film is like absolutely full of them. That. But also it's like this really sweet... I mean, there's a whole segment of this movie that is just two rocks. Not going to say is, anymore, it is, but it's it is part of the most powerful part heartfelt. of the movie. Yeah, it is like really, really heartfelt. And to your point... With the rock scene, there are uh, for all the people who are like, "Oh man, like where's um, I'm worried about the state of movies today with uh, mm-hmm. the economics being so kind of warped by the success of the Marvel movies." Here is a movie that does everything you want, like a summer blockbuster, to do, but also has like that indie movie heart and audacious, super weird choices that are like there is so much weird stuff like the two the rock yeah. the rock scene where you're just man i can't believe that worked and it and it really works it lands so hard yeah and i think as well like we've talked a lot about the icons but like nobody was writing a script like this for michelle yo you know she said yeah. this is the script where she read it and she was like this is the movie that can see all the different things i can be i can be funny i can be serious i can be badass i can be sad i can you know and we know like we've said key he hadn't been in a major hollywood movie for like 20 years this was his first audition i think that daniel said for for 20 years and then obviously james hong who's like an icon and has over 600 credits and is just absolutely one of my favorite actors of all time but he gets to have this really dynamic complex hilarious action-packed character arc again that nobody is really writing for him like probably his biggest role in a movie like this since like big trouble in little china where you're getting this really layered like character piece and it's just that's like miraculous to see and that's not even shouting out like jamie lee curtis who just plays everything (laughs) so straight like you can't believe the the things she does in this movie and the sincerity with which she does them like in my dream dreams, like this movie sweeps every Oscar and every award season <laughs> next year. And Michelle Yeoh is 100% there. I just for, one of our greatest living yeah, talents. Yeah, like she Absolutely. should be getting a Best Actress Oscar. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I'm like, put her up for Best Supporting Baby. Because she's Stephanie Sue as well. But like this cast is just unreal. Let me ask you, what was your Michelle Yeoh entry point? What was your, what was your, <laughs> oh, original, dr- what was your original drug? 
your you're original talking drug to, for, you're talking for my getting language. into the Michelle Yeoh uh, version. I, mine is like super – it's the obvious one, uh, Super Cop, um, Police oh. Story 3 Super Cop, in which she plays like a, a police detective who then has to link up with Jackie Chan's character to take down um, – uh, drug dealers in Malaysia, and it contains some of the craziest stunts. Michelle Yeoh jumps a dirt bike onto a moving train mm-hmm. in this movie, like f- just fucking insane. And then, uh, you know, later on, I would watch all the rest. You know, yeah, uh, uh, yes, madam. I was gonna her, say like, mine is definitely uh, yes, madam. Yes, like madam. That, Cla- I, absolute I love- classic. Hong Kong movie oh, with I Sammo love, Hung, it's, it's and so bonkers. Cynthia Rothrock, Sui yeah, Ark, iconic. incredible. It's like it's so bonkers to think like Michelle actually did a really incredible interview recently uh, with my friend Gretchen Smale at Bustle, which is just so wonderful and adds a lot of really complex layers to to the movie. Where she talks about how she retired from acting and Hong Kong cinema at the age of twenty eight with plans to start a family, so she'd already done all of that. By the time she was 28, she'd had a whole career. Yes, Madam, you know, Super Cop, like these unbelievable iconic movies. Just just put Yes, Madam into YouTube uh, and yes, watch Madam some of the scenes must be seen. with yeah. Cynthia Rothrock and Michelle Yeoh. I mean, as a kid who grew up watching like kung fu movies, that movie was like a revelation. It must then, be seen. And then she came back and she has this second wave of like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. You know, these- I mean, so, uh, Yes, Madam was like, 1985. 85. That's what I'm saying. Like, just unbelievable stuff. And it's just, she's been so iconic on so many levels. And I think for a lot of us, she has been like a staple of all kinds of cinema, whether it was like Hong Kong cinema, whether it was the, whether it was Wushu actually coming to Hollywood for the first time with Crouching Tiger, you know? It's, it's astonishing the impact she's had. And I feel like this is a celebration of that, but also probably just marks like the third wave of her career while she'll just become even more powerful. Uh, well, let's talk with the uh, the creators of this movie, the writer-director duo known as the Daniels, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests and say we are thrilled to have Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, known collectively as the Daniels, writer-directors of everything, everywhere, all at once. Gentlemen, love the movie. How, um, how, did it, how did this come together? How did this film come together? And I just, like, I kept thinking, how, what does the script look like? Because this is so, like, uh, the level of like absurdist randomness action is so off the charts that I was like, man, how do you even write this down? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We, um, by the way, thank you for having us. Very excited to talk about the movie. Um, Well, I'll start there. The, the random acts to 
use as an engine for traveling to other universes. That's, mm-hmm. That is kind of one of the initial ideas. Um, we, we both grew up on Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Hitcher, mm-hmm. Guide and Vonnegut and just that sort of absurdist sci-fi that... There we <laughs> go. Book, yeah, I can pull mine down. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, but there, there's such a, um irreverent quality to their sci-fi that is still very yeah. much grounded in science and like there's still something like a, like a, a kernel of truth in it all and, and you know that idea came the idea of, of using improbable actions to uh, build up a momentum a, a probabilistic momentum or, and to, to slingshot yourself into other universes kind of was like a really silly initial idea that I pitched to Shiner and I was like is there something here could we do something kind of like uh, like like Douglas Adams meets the Matrix um, and I was like no <laughs> <laughs> no I said I think I, I I thought it sounded like an exciting short film like which we have mm-hmm. a long list of kind of like gags you know that interest mm-hmm. us and so we would brainstorm it but uh, it didn't kind of take shape until we had uh, sat with it for a while and started kind of thinking about. Um, the multiverse and how the multiverse makes us feel and why would we make a whole movie about, you know, that sci-fi premise. I I really love to uh, lean into the premise and not just uh, um, brush over it like some, like that's a pet Mm -hmm. peeve of mine, I guess, sometimes. Um, It's like a convenient device for the story, but you don't actually get to really sit in the philosophical and existential like consequences of of Mm -hmm. the premise. Yeah, so... uh, it was. It wasn't until we decided that we were going to go to too many universes until it was existentially terrifying, and that it was going to be <laughs> a Chinese American family, uh, and that the kind of immigrant experience and also just generational divide would become like the kind of relatable companion that we'd be using the multiverse to play with. That then we were like, "Oh, there's enough for a feature film here," you know. There's enough for three uh, feature films. Yeah, squeeze them into one. Yeah, and we're like, and all it'll take is four years of miracles, and yeah. then uh, we'll put it out in theaters, uh, and somehow that happened. Yeah. That's so incredible. I mean, the movie was just so wonderful. It was like immediately in my favorite movies of all time. It's just like, I can't wait to go and see it again. I'm just, it's everything that I love. So it's so wonderful. But you said something there that I just think is so interesting and I'd love to dig into a bit more. What is it about the multiverse that spoke to you? What is it about exploring that Mm. and that being the idea that was worth exploring? Because like you said, a lot of times it's a a buzzword it's a, it's a conventional narrative device but what was it about the multiverse and the idea of multiple different universes kind of existing alongside each other that that made this story click mm-hmm. yeah one of the fascinating things about the multiverse or just the idea of infinity is that it's it's very um, interdisciplinary you know obviously there's like quantum mechanics and quantum physics has its version of it which you know talks about you know uh, superpositions and and you know whether or not the wave function collapses um and you know parallel universes that's kind of i think that's what most people think of when they think or another of way of putting it that i like to put it is like like there are a lot of scientists who believe there might actually be an infinite number of universes that's a pretty scary thing yeah. you know mm-hmm. physics wise and then and then and then like you know when we were doing research for this movie we found that the one of the first known instances of the word multiverse being used in the english language actually had nothing to do with science it was actually a a theologist who was basically um, lamenting the fact that um, how confusing everything was. He was like, (laughs) from a moral perspective, I know that God is the one and only moral center of the universe, right? There's a a universe. But 
when I look around me and I see, you know, the the heathens and whatever, it's like there is a moral multiverse. The 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 the, the uh, secular mm. world doesn't doesn't necessarily have one clean narrative, and uh, so he used the word multiverse from a moral standpoint. And I'm like, oh, that's fascinating, you know. And then linguistics has its own linguistics um, has modal realism, which is kind of taking the idea of like. Um, when you are swapping out any word in the sentence, how it drastically changes the reality of that sentence and basically like posits like what happens if each one of those uh, sentences is its own reality that, that has its own um, integrity or whatever. And so we're kind of looking at it like, I mean, there's so many different angles into this, this, um, this concept that no one else is tackling, you know, like yeah. for the most part, mm-hmm. the multiverse is, is kind of used as a way to, um, Combine IP in an interesting way, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's yep. a cultural fracking. We call it. You, you're digging deep <laughs> the past of culture. We, we didn't coin that. Yeah, we yeah. found it online. Yeah, and we yeah. were like, ooh, we like that word. Cultural fracking. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I, I think. Yeah, you know, there is. I love. No, I love Super <laughs> Smash Brothers. Super Smash Brothers yeah. is, is like incredible. I remember being like, I can have Pikachu and DK at the same time. Yeah, yeah. How incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to dig into just like DK because your initials exactly. Oh. I love it. <laughs> but Pikachu is my main. Pikachu with the uh, with the wizard hat. That's my yeah, main. Yeah, Kirby. Um, but so for our movie, we're like, oh, it, it, the multiverse becomes a metaphor for the internet and what it feels like to be alive with the internet. It also becomes a metaphor for um, the way that uh, we all have these like uh, bubbles and we all kind of exist in our own versions of our own movies. You know, we, we believe we're the main character of our own movie and what happens when those uh, two movies collide and they don't mesh. And so the whole mm. film is characters who are living in their own stories, not realizing that they're talking past each other. Um, and mm. And so... There, there's so many different ways you can kind of use this premise to explore really real feelings and really real experiences. And, um, you know, I feel like our, our movie is just barely beginning to tap into that. The cast is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis, Michelle Yeoh, the legend Michelle Yeoh, yeah. um, which, uh, you know, not enough can possibly be said about her. Um, James Hong, uh, icon, absolute like Titan legend. legend. And then, mm-hmm. and then Kei Hu Kwan, who probably most people remember from, uh, uh Temple of Doom, which is, a uh, Indian Jones movie that is aged poorly and the Goonies, <laughs> but like, man, seeing him in this movie, I'm just like, why has he not been one of our like top 20, most compelling actors over the last 20 years when you like yeah. when you went to the movie star universe and he's in the suit i'm like am i in a one car wife i'm like what is yeah. like, <laughs> i didn't even know he had this in him to talk about that this incredible cast that i also one more thing i thought about a lot last <laughs> night is just like how this is the best action movie ever Mm-hmm. That is primarily set in an IRS office. Like that yeah. is a wild <laughs> choice. Yeah, t- t- talk to us about this cast. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it uh, it started with Michelle, and we knew we wanted her, and we were worried that if she said no, there was no one else. Uh, right. <laughs> on, like mm-hmm. that, the movie just wouldn't happen. Um, and then, luckily, she believed in it. Turns out, she was more right for the role than we even knew. You know, um, and she really responded to the script. And then that made it so much easier to attract exciting mm. people, you know, and, and to get the movie <laughs> greenlit. Um, but even with, with Key, you know, there was no, there was no um, question that, like, 
there was something special about him. And he, even when he read the script, he knew like right away, he's like, this role was made for me. You know, he, mm-hmm. he told us that he told us that um, after we cast him, how, how the moment he read it, he was like, I think I need to come back into acting and this is going to be my first role. And how exciting is that going to be? And so he, his, his audition was the first audition he had done in like a couple decades. Um, in the wow. US. Holy yeah. cow. Um, yeah. So he hasn't been. He, he kind of retired from acting and went behind the camera, went to film mm-hmm. school, did stunt coordination, and first he was a first AD for Wong Kar Wai yeah. for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2046. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the funny thing about Key, you know, because you're just talking about how we've been missing out on him for so long, it is, it is just kind of tragic that this kid that um, Spielberg found and yeah. Spielberg and his team found out of like, you know, thousands of other kids, uh, they, they, they auditioned and auditioned forever and they almost gave up on the character. They almost wrote the character out of the movie. Um, and then they find key like out of all these kids and he has this special like, um, X factor. It's, it, it's yeah. a lame, lame way to put it, but he has something special mm-hmm. that, that you can't, um, put a number on. You can't, you can't like, um, yeah, there, there's no way to, to evaluate it in that, um, in any other way except for when you watch him, you just want to smile, and when you mm-hmm. watch him, you just you just yeah. you fall in love with him. And we knew that Waymond, the character Waymond, had to be that way because um, anyone else um, delivering lines about kindness or like you know, please stop fighting, yeah. everyone just let us get along, you know, anyone else delivering those kind of lines, I think it would have gotten a lot of eye rolls. But with with Key Kwan, like he can say those lines and you believe it and you and, yeah. you, and you want to live in a world where that is true. And I think mm-hmm. um, there's, uh, yeah, we're so lucky that we got him in this movie and we're so lucky that I think our industry has him back. You know, I'm so excited yes. to see what he gets yeah. to do next. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I would love to talk like he was definitely, I love, I mean, I love Michelle Yeoh. I love James Hong. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. So this was like a movie <laughs> where everyone in it is just incredible. But Key is someone who's so core to so many of our childhoods but I never kind of saw how I I never saw where this his story was going in the movie (laughs) and it was um it was just so powerful and wonderful and you kind of touched on it a little bit of his his message of kindness so could you talk a little bit about that aspect the the radical empathy and that Mm. being kind of the the mainline message and kind of understanding overarching that comes out of the movie yeah I mean I think at the start as we kind of told you it was just like we had this first jumping idea and and we were like oh what if we could do some stylized fight scenes we love action movies and like Mm -hmm. to 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 do our version of the matrix but with like stephen chow craziness and you know (laughs) was so exciting uh and then uh as is usually the case when we're like making something funny we start to feel guilty about like uh but why 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 make this movie what's it about are we gonna just uh culturally frack some more people's time and uh, and and we started kind of thinking about how we're not uh violent guys and 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 also like i'm a pacifist in fact and so like there's this like subtext to action films which is um Violence is an is a good answer, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, and so we just we hit our heads against the wall on that a lot, and and it became kind of the project of the movie, you know, to be like, can we can we explore that and lean into it and question it, and and so this character took shape of like the dismissible beta male who is mm. not the alpha male action star, and unless he's being taken over for moments by you know 
the more appropriately actiony version of himself. But like, uh, once we kind of unlocked that, we got, it, it was like a real aha moment for the whole script to be like, oh, this movie's going to celebrate that sweet person. And, and mm-hmm. the fact that being kind is, is a way of fighting. Like that's a way of changing the world. Uh, that's just as valuable, if not more so. And, uh, and, and we, we specifically wanted to be like, let's make uh, someone kinding people to death. Um, <laughs> just, right. That just sequence as, like, is so great. Yeah, yeah. and that was but, that was the last puzzle piece. It was like, yeah. oh my God, at the end, if she just kind, kind, kinds people, like, <laughs> yeah. that's Everyone's be... happy, everyone's happy. Exactly, uh-huh. but it's, it's like, what if we made that just as satisfying as like Kill Bill or just as satisfying mm, as like a yeah. headshot from, from John Wick? Because um, I think those things give us such a dopamine hit, which is why they're so fun. And uh, the way that they're shot and the way that the, the, it, the, the editing works, it, it is candy. Um, and so we wanted to take all of our special skills that we have in our back pockets to give, to deliver that dopamine hit, but like totally, in, you know, show it in a completely different radical way. Um, so yeah, we call that the empathy fight. It's, a, it's very silly, but um, it was really... <laughs> Yeah, that became like one of the North Stars for the films. Like, if we can pull that off, I think this is going to be a very special movie. So, yeah. We really did. And I'd I'd love to ask about some of these action scenes because, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the the Wushu fanny pack fight (laughs) is one of the most, uh, truly like one of the most original fight scenes I've seen in a while. How did all of that stuff come together and how hard was it to get it, to get it on film? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we struggled with, finding the right collaborators for this um we are such um hong kong action cinema nuts like we grew up yeah. on that stuff yeah. all the the shaw brothers stuff and and yeah. specifically yoon Wu ping's work you know he's worked <laughs> with all the greats and um, this guy jackie chan is like really good if you've <laughs> ever <laughs> Has he done anything that we've heard <laughs> <His> stuff, <laughs> look yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we really wanted to make a conscious effort to pull away from a lot of the modern action trends in the movies that we're watching yeah. and go back to the basics. Um, a, because we love that stuff and it's in our bones, but B, because it's actually, um, if done right, it can be just as, it can be way cheaper to do, you know, because, mm. you know, those Hong Kong action films didn't yep. have much money. Um, yes, and so, and no, no money. Yeah. Exactly, no money, basically. <laughs> no money, a lot of time, um, and like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of injuries, but, you know, we realized like this is something that we could do well if we found the right people. And one day we were on YouTube and we were looking up um, martial arts um, videos just for references. And we found this short film from these guys called The Martial Club. And mm-hmm. we're like, are these guys, are these guys in the U.S.? Because like these people, are, these guys are amazing. Not only are they so like technically incredible, but their camera work is really smart. And they also infuse humor in mm. a lot of their fights, which like most, um, I think most modern action films um, try to do, but it's not really, it's usually with quippy dialogue and not with right. visual, visual, physical comedy, which is what we wanted to, our movie to have. And so um, we reached out to them. They're, they're a bunch of friends from OC and they just became um, instantly just like the 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 people that we wanted to work with because they they reminded the, us of ourselves the way that they are just a bunch of friends shooting stuff in their in their living room and then putting them mm-hmm. online yeah um, and that was the that was exactly the energy we needed for our film for for this movie yeah yeah so it ended up being a a, a huge priority for us but like a successful collaboration between uh, us having strong opinions and kind of being like let's make each fight different and and writing. Mm-hmm. writing in a way that each one could be, could be an ode to a different kind of 
style of filmmaking that we love. Um, and then the Marshall Club bringing their like encyclopedic knowledge of uh, all kung fu movies ever made. And then <laughs> it's, it's, worth, it's worth noting that uh, none of them have, or at least the two brothers, the two main choreographers, never mm. took any lessons. They have a friend, oh Danny, Ma, who's like, uh, he's like more formally trained, and but uh, but Andy and Brian are just like they just know what has been in movies. They just watch they, movies they and act it out. They study the old Hong Kong movies, and that's yeah. everything they know. It's brilliant. Yeah. So they so then they helped us pre-visit all, and then we had our stunt coordinator Tim Ulick, who we've worked with mm-hmm. a lot, uh, uh, make it so we successfully hurt nobody. Yeah, um, yeah. I love to hear it. Yeah, and so we were able to just kind of like. Move really fast. Michelle was very mm. surprised that we were able to uh, shoot it all in the time we had and not uh, do what it's called spraying. With some people call spraying it down, where you're just like, mm. uh, get three cameras uh, now. Do the fight that you guys rehearsed. Right. Uh, we'll figure it out in post. Move on. Yeah. You know, we um, um, we we tried really hard not to do that. We had the opportunity to sit down with Quentin Tarantino like years ago, like six seven years ago, um, at the Sundance Institute at the Sundance Lab. He was one of our advisors. And we took the opportunity just like to pick his brain to be like, what what was it like shooting Kill Bill's like fight sequences? Because those are some of like my favorite American action scenes I've ever yeah. seen. And you know, he said something that you know kind of feels obvious now, but like at the time was really um, interesting. He, um, he, he was talking about how Hollywood usually sprays it down, or they 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 kind of kind of try to cover it conventionally as if it was like a dialogue scene when really. Mm-hmm. Shooting it like it's like it's a it's a dance sequence, like its own it's its own version of a narrative, of a visual narrative. And so he learned from Yun Wu Ping, who was a consulting um, choreographer on yeah. Kill Bill, um, that every single shot was um, perfectly catered to the move that they were about to shoot. Mm-hmm. And then the next shot, so if like this punch to the face, let's get the perfect shot for, to, for that punch to the face. And then if the shot of him falling down has to kind of turn around 180 and break the 180 line and also force the entire crew to relight, then we're mm. going to do that. So they shoot everything in order sequentially, just finding oh, wow. the best shot for each moment, mm-hmm. um, which is incredibly time consuming, but also it's why those fight scenes are so beautifully done and mm-hmm. so clear you know there's a narrative yeah. clarity to them and uh, so our our ad and our cinematographer were like no way we can do that yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds nice but no. <laughs> and we but we tried to like take that ethos to heart and find some mm-hmm. compromise somewhere in mm-hmm. there and, and not um and yeah and try to really study that style yeah, and and you can tell it, 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 our movie. I think the fight scenes are are. I'm very proud of them because yeah. they feel so different. And uh, you know, after it, when when we go to see it in the theaters, uh, after every fight scene, there's like a, applause breaks, which is like, come yeah. on, that's how amazing yeah. is that? So yeah, fun. yeah, that's yeah. that's what it's like when in my theater it was people were reacting to it just. It was it was wonderful to be a part of cheering, you know, during the cool. fight scenes, especially the fanny pack fight scene. That was yeah. like a big a big statement piece. The butt plug prop work was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that was like being in the theater when like Captain America picked up Thor's hammer. Like <laughs> yeah. everyone just lost their yeah. shit. Good, good comparison. No, exactly way. like that. That was what we were trying to go for. Uh-huh. Right, yeah, everyone exactly. was just like, ah, oh my god. <laughs> That was really great. So, like this kind of this, I I love this juxtaposition between you guys bringing this grassroots collaborative filmmaking, that, which is what you do, and then this being like the first A twenty four movie with like an IMAX release, and yeah. that kind of juxtaposition. 
But you also did that with the VFX, right? Because like I was reading your thread about how you didn't go to like a big post house and you just hired your friends. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because the VFX in this movie and the way this movie looks is just astonishing. So could you talk about like that decision and and why it was the right one? Because it's obvious to us, but why was it right for you guys? Yeah, I mean, the the script we wrote, people read it and they were like, um, this is going to be like a $80 million movie. <laughs> uh, and we're like, no, it's not. No, um, we promise. And then we did, in the rewriting process, try to like really lean into the the tricks we were used to and the tools we were used to playing with. And, um, and so coming from music videos, like we, uh, we have very basic VFX knowledge ourselves. And we leaned on that really heavily so that we could do a lot of our own visual effects in our shorts and music videos. And so like uh, the vast majority of the movie is done practically or we're just using visual effects for very, to make things safe or yeah. uh, production friendly where it's like, oh, we can remove that light or that wire, but we're or not, like, there's no like characters that are computer generated, mm-hmm. you or, know, or, or sometimes some practical effects, you know, people, people, I think people have like this nostalgic hard on for practical effects, but in practicality, it's, it's, it's actually a pain in the ass, you know, because <laughs> like the, the setup time is such a pain and like, and every you, time you break it, you have to reset, you know, yeah. it takes like yeah. half an hour and it's never um, quite perfect. And so what we do is we take the imperfect um, take, uh, you know, maybe we'll get two takes if we're lucky. And then a lot we'll of times take, just one, just yeah. one take. And then we just like, spruce it up in post because we know how to so like we mm-hmm. get the best of both worlds so it doesn't feel fully cg because i think mm-hmm. audiences are aware of it when when it's fully cg so we put tons of dust on them when they hit each other because that's how yeah. like kung fu movies yeah. look yeah. and then we added more dust in post because right. some of the hits <laughs> weren't as dusty as we wanted right but it but we we're always kind of mixing the two uh but to kind of get to the end of the the headline we had like seven friends do over 500 visual effects wow. like and there was no post house and uh we didn't even think when we started that we were going to be able to do all of it with our small team uh but they kind of stepped their game up and and we weren't sure they'd be able to do all the bagel or all the finale stuff and uh some of our friends were like I want to learn some new stuff and so they <laughs> Oh. They did. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, our friends would be wild. watching YouTube tutorials for this, you know, <laughs> this movie that we didn't actually know was going to be playing in IMAX. Like right. that's, how that do was I use After Effects? Basically, But I think it was something that we, you know, honed in during our music video times. We did a music video for Tenacious D a long time ago, and mm-hmm. um, we, you know, we had no time and uh, very small budget. So we just brought in our friends who were other directors and we all mm-hmm. got in my bedroom and we lined up all of our computers and we just, it, it kind of felt like a LAN party, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. everyone was just, we were just passing After Effects projects back and forth. And, mm. you know, it was, some of it was really frustrating because it was all new to us. But then, you know, the, the final shot of that, of that Tenacious D video is this really epic shot of, of, um, the, the band floating in, you know, this cosmic, you know, tapestry that's really beautiful. And what that final shot was, was basically, you know, Ben Brewer, one of the other directors created um, certain elements. And then Zach Stoltz would create certain elements and Jeff Dessen would create certain elements. And then it would all get funneled to me and I would kind of create the, the final, you know, just because I'm so particular, um, 
just to save time on like all the back and forth in the notes, I would I would do the final pass and, and, and tie it all together. And uh, we, I was like, why? Maybe we should just do this for this movie. And so for a lot of the bagel shots, it was this very collaborative exploration um, mm-hmm. where um, they would keep sending me elements, or I'd ask for certain things, and then I'd try to stick it together and in, in, into like something that felt stupid and cosmic and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> Um, and then I would pass it over to Ethan, who has like a really good eye for like very um, old school um, techniques. Like he, he, you know, he, he, he was the kid in school because uh, we all went to Emerson College. Yeah. Uh, he was the kid in school who. It's the first place I dropped acid. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Connected. Um, yeah. But he was doing like uh, optical printing, like um, oh, wow. pra- practically with with like sixteen millimeter back in in college when everyone else was already moved on to digital or whatever. So like it, it was a really fun, yeah. weird, organic thing, and we um, I'm really proud of it. Like all 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 of it feels unique to this movie. It doesn't feel like we're trying to compete with the big blockbusters. It it has its own style and its own handmade ethos to it. And during COVID, we were all just like. Uh, we were going, we were, everyone was working more hours than we expected, um, but uh, we were just giving money to our friends. So it's a pretty cool way to That's go amazing. over budget. Yeah. 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 We like, the dream. And, and we weren't going that far over budget. I was like, I guess we'll just send some money yeah. to our <laughs> friends. Yeah. It, was, uh, it, was it became cool. like a valuable job for you know all of them to be like, great, let's just let's just chug away and Especially do some Especially because all of these directors weren't booking jobs because there was, yeah. there was mm-hmm. nothing to do. So yeah. it ended up being a really beautiful, like weird, <laughs> perfect project for all of us. But you mentioned the the four year journey to get this on the screen, um, and the the numerous miracles that were necessary to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, was there ever a moment where you're like, "Fuck, we're just not going to make we're not going to make this movie"? Uh, a couple what were times. Some of the lowest lows, Dan. I think the I mean the biggest one was like we haven't talked we haven't spoken too much about this, but you know when we set out to make this movie. Asian American films hadn't been like a proven like viable mm-hmm. business um, like <laughs> model, I guess, for lack of a better word. So we actually we had a hard time figuring out the casting of it all. And um, at one point, you know, we had Aquafina attached, and that was going to give us our green light because you know she was one of the few yeah. Asian American actresses or actors in our our whole industry that could probably green light something. And uh, when some scheduling conflicts came up like the whole thing almost fell apart which was really uh it was really scary but also just really frustrating it's kind of it's like because we're also like there's a there are a lot of talented people out there mm-hmm. like uh, yeah like a good movie guys yeah um, um and, and so that 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 was probably my lowest low um just just realizing how as independent filmmakers, how tied we are to the value, the imaginary value of of, right. of, of these actors, um, and it's, it's it's none of them is it's their fault. It's just the way that the machine works and the way that the yeah. ag- agents kind of talk to each other and and um, try to, um, you know, like we we're, we're always in like this bad position as indif- independent filmmakers where we have very little leverage, you know, and, and it's very, yeah. it's, so that, that it's a very um, disempowering experience to try to yeah get your money funded. We're, we're right now we're, we're executive producing another movie um, and we're in that problem right now. And, you know, even as executive producers, we don't know what to do sometimes. It's like this, the, the whole, the whole conundrum of casting 
A-list actors for small indie movies is is right. it's like it's a really great uh, model because then you know these movies get to be seen by people, um, but then it's also really frustrating because it's so fragile. The whole thing can just mm. fall apart any moment, and I, I mourn all the movies that uh, basically died um, close to the finish line, you know, because of casting problems, which I I, I know so many of my friends have have gone through that problem process. Yeah. Do you have a low point? No, it was fun. It was, the whole thing was fun. Yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it was just a blast. It, yeah. It, I, uh, to finish. Yeah. We finished it last summer, and so we've been waiting until theaters were open because we like mm-hmm. everyone really believed it was mm-hmm. worth seeing in theaters. Um, but, uh, you know, so the, the last few surges of COVID were pretty demoralizing. It was like, yeah. it's, never, it's never coming yeah. out. It's never, I don't know. <laughs> and- yeah. What is it like after kind of those, that that journey, you know, the highs and the lows and everything, what's it like for the movie to come out and to, it hasn't even gone wide yet, but mm-hmm. what's it been like to come out and see this story that I'm sure many people told you was like not universal enough or was too niche or, and to have right. like every single person who see it go, oh my God, this is so relatable. I love this movie. Like, what has it been like to get to see it on screen and see all the work that you and your friends put in and see this story be received by so many different kinds of people as something Mm -hmm. that really means something to them? Confusing. Yeah. I still don't believe it. (laughs) I genuinely don't. Like, I still like, well, like someone will be like, oh, it's got this score on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm like, I haven't internalized that. I don't yeah. think I believe you. Yeah. I don't think I believe well, you. Because all, so much of our work is built off the premise of like, um, no one's going to let us make this. Like, like that's right. the, that's such a driving force behind our process. Is it's at- like the things we want to see out there that aren't getting made are the things that interest us. But then we know we're we're biting off something unlikely or that mm-hmm. might be niche, but that'll mean something to the people like us. And uh, so we we thought this would reach a uh, you know a bigger audience than Sorry Man obviously but even still like we knew that there would this movie would be too much for people like we made this movie mm-hmm. specifically knowing that we would push some people away um because we would just you know it's it's such a loud long overstuffed wild chaotic thing um which is very intentional and you know every decision we made we're like okay if we keep the butt plugs in <laughs> how, like what, what percentage of our audience yeah. do we lose and how much do we, you know it's, it's, it's but also much, how much stronger are the themes yeah. <laughs> yeah hot dog fingers what was the percentages on that one it's like exactly uh, it's like and we're like okay but if we keep the hot dog fingers in how beautiful and romantic can we make that how mm-hmm. how cathartic mm-hmm. can that be um so again we can just win a couple more people and so it, it the whole thing is a very calculated affair but our math was off yeah <laughs> <laughs> This is too much. Yeah, I, I don't believe it. I, I I do hope that with the wide release, things start to like you know even out a little bit. People or this will be a funny soundbite after the movie flops. Exactly. <laughs> it was all no, that won't exactly. This is the, oh. the dot com bubble of a movie. It will be a funnier soundbite when it becomes like the biggest movie of all time, and then you two are just like crying. Like, why do people like oh, it? That, it really is that. It's like. The um, imposter syndrome in me is just uh, is fully on fire right now. I'm like, this is a, it's a horrible feeling, but also, so on on the grand scale, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. Oh and then wow! On on, okay? the, on the individual, <laughs> level, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. Okay. Um, but on the individual level, when we 
get chance to talk to people after Q&As or have uh, people DM us their, these very personal stories, it is just the most fulfilling, beautiful experience. Like the, the fact that we can work so hard on something that is very personal and very like specific to us and to have so many different kinds of people from different walks of life just see themselves in it and like... You know, we've been doing screenings and Q&As almost every, <laughs> feels like almost every night for the past three weeks. Yeah. And, you know, I would say at, at least half of them, if not more, um, someone will come up to us and start crying on one of our shoulders. And it's oh, just wow. this this very strange thing where we have created a space for people to fully express themselves. You know, now that, you know, because the movie kind of just destroys logic, destroys any conventions and just really just leaves you in this place of like possibility or at least that's that's our mm-hmm. intention um and some people take that as an invitation to fully um express themselves to us and and it it is just um it is humbling uh, it's, it's a humbling reminder of the fact that like our films matter and i think a lot of people have forgotten that you know mm-hmm. i i even forgotten that like i don't i don't until like you know, three weeks ago when the movie came out, I, don't, I, I was starting to lose faith in the idea that movies can change people's lives. You know, like, I've forgotten that. I've forgotten that that's what happened to me. Like, I forgot that movies changed my life and that's why my, I became a filmmaker. And so to have this response remind me of the power of what we're doing is like really humbling and also just putting, it puts a fire under my ass because like I'm realizing, shit, the next thing I do, like, I can't, I can't go easy. This is, this is so important. It's too important for me to, to, um, get lazy i in fact there's so much more work to be done in the world and you know if this is the only tool i have Mm -hmm. um to save the world i'm going to use it you know and and how how thrilling how exciting and so like you know when our next movie comes out and it saves the world um you can think (laughs) this will be a great soundbite exactly exactly bigger butt plugs (laughs) slash when dan starts a cult. When I started a cult, exactly, <laughs> right. yeah. The bagel cult. It's no, uh, but but part of part of the um, the uh, credit will go to all the wonderful people who have reached out to us mm-hmm. and reminded us of the fact that stories matter. That or the films blame. Matter. Exactly. Or the blame. Yeah. When the blame. when the when the movie backfires and does the opposite somehow. Right. <laughs> does the opposite? Yeah. It ends the world. Maybe that's actually what our next movie should be. Just a suicide cult of a movie? No, it's it's about two directors trying to make a movie to save the world, Uh and accidentally they Uh, end the world. End the world. That sounds good. All right, you guys want to scoop scoop us on our our next film. Sort of cat's cradle-y. I guess it is cat's cradle Well, congratulations on really, uh, just a really super mind-melty, heartfelt movie that was a blast to watch uh congratulations on it coming out congratulations on the accolades y'all deserve it uh here's hoping it's the biggest hit uh in the world very soon (laughs) and we just we loved it so thanks for taking the time thank you so much for coming and thank you so much nice to meet y'all this was such a great conversation thank you guys thank you thank you you so much for taking the time bye y'all bye thanks to the daniels for coming on the show up next nerd out In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, Mike pitches us on the creative partnership between comic creators Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. Hey, Jason. I've got a little bit of an unusual Nerd Out pitch for you. Today, I'm going to nerd out about a creative combo. Uh, I'm sure we've all got our favorite, uh, you know, when 
just one writer gets with one artist and they just do something magic every time they get together. And my pitch today is Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. They started together back in the New 52 run of uh, DC, I think 2011, 2012, whenever that was. They did a weird stint, uh, Green Arrow 17 to 34. Those Only those issues. They didn't start the run, they didn't finish the run. But what they did together was uh, some legendary Green Arrow storytelling. Even if you're not a DC person, uh, just go check that out. It was a very cool run that they did. Sorrentino has this very uh, distinct art style. Uh, Lemire always gets this great tension and suspense while getting like inside the psychology of a character. It's just got a gifted combo. Then... 2016, 2017, they tackle Old Man Logan together. They didn't complete that run either. They did 1 through 13, I think like 16 to 23, and then the run kept going without them. But then in uh, 20, I think maybe 17 or 18, they started Gideon Falls together, which is a complete horror series. And I'm not normally a horror reader, even though I'm a huge Lemire fan. Uh, but this horror series was really great. The first six issues or the first trade as you would pick it up uh, now. I thought, this is kind of interesting. I'm uh, not sure exactly what's going on. Not really my genre. And by the time I got to like issue 10, you know, right towards the end of the second trade, I basically read the entire run uh, in one sitting. It was so good. Really enjoyed that. Then they moved to DC Black Label. They did uh, some of those oversized magazine style books uh, called Joker Killer Smile and Batman Smile Killer. They just recently or are about to finish uh, Primordial, which is a six-issue limited series. It's a Cold War thriller. And the great thing about this nerd out pitch is that if you uh, accept the advice of this nerd out and start getting into the Lemire-Sorrentino combo, you can be on the front end of Bone Orchard, their upcoming project that comes out, uh, well, depends when this uh, gets used on a podcast, but it's coming out this spring. Uh, should be another great one. These guys have not yet missed when pairing up together. Uh, I, uh, it's just as my final thought on the nerd out, uh, I am the Jeff Lemire fan at my comic shop to the point where now when anything comes in, if it's a variant, if it's a one in 20 retailer thing, they set it aside and just give me first right of refusal. They come in and they say, hey man, no pressure, but this came in. We know you're the Lemire guy. Do you want this or should we put it on the rack? And I always take it because uh, that's what makes local comic shops great. Uh, Jason, love the show. Thank you so much for doing it. My favorite episodes are when you guys just go through deep dives on comic recommendations. Keep bringing in uh, new voices. Love to hear everybody's take on stuff. Love finding weird books. Uh, and uh, yeah, just keep building my reading list. Thank you. Thanks for submitting, Mike. If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch to x-ray at cricket.com. Instructions are in the show notes. Up next, we go into the end game. We're in the end game now, and today we are going to name our top three Hong Kong action movies are just uh, movies that uh, came out of Hong Kong. There's, we may cheat. We may not cheat to involve movies that came from uh, <laughs> other locations in Asia and Southeast Asia. But uh, that's the game. Uh, our top three Hong Kong action movies. Rosie, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, okay. I'll go first. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm going to start with a classic, mostly because I actually just saw it. Um, yeah, do it. 
recently, which is uh, I went to the new Bev with my friends Elijah and Vanessa, and it was so wonderful. And we saw Once Upon a Time in China. Oh, uh, yeah. With Jet Li as like a folkloric, like he's like a hero. Um, and Wong Fei Hung, who is this martial arts master. And we saw Once Upon a Time in China 1 and 2, and it was just like so wonderful to see that movie on 35 mil. It's like this e- historical epic, you know, Jet Li's a baby and there's other yeah, babies in baby. it. <laughs> Dude, you get to see, I was like, I literally, no joke, I like was screaming when you just see people popping up and you're like, oh, hi. You're like, it's just like a masterclass. It's also incredibly funny, which a lot of the Hong Kong movies are, but this one has like this really serious historical kind of lens that it begins through so when you get to those comedy moments it's really good so yeah that would be that would be my number three i'm gonna start my number three god this is like honestly so hard and just truly if you just say like jackie chan Jet Li, and john woo like and donnie already, yen i mean it's and like donnie, it's just yeah, too like, many people it is, you've already done but so i'm gonna go with um i'm gonna go with the uh gosh I'm going to go with the 1983 Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung collaboration uh, with Yuen Biao, uh, also starring uh, Project A, uh, which is a, a, a period movie about early 20th century Hong Kong and uh, how this uh, trio of police heroes has to deal with these like evil pirates. And it's got truly some <laughs> of the craziest like Project A is the movie in which uh, uh, Jackie Chan references the famous Harold Lloyd stunt where he falls like off the clock tower. Jackie Chan in this movie falls off a clock tower and onto his head. And it is like filmed in meticulous slow-mo where you watch him fall like through awnings and then hit the ground. And it is just crazy. It is crazy. There's some like really fun uh, bike Bicycle hijinks. It's just like a fantastic movie. And I love the period of Jackie's career when he was working with Sammo and Yuen Biao closely and they were together doing all these movies. It's just like super fun. Great movie. You can't go wrong if you rent it or watch it. Yeah. Great, great film. That movie is amazing. And also like those, I think there's like, I've watched a lot of documentaries about like Sammo and and Jackie and stuff. And if you were on a Sammo movie, you were probably getting hurt. And I oh, think 100%, that's, you I were think get that's why those movies, like when you watch them, you're just like, oh my God. And then everyone's like, yeah, I broke my neck. <laughs> like, and and there, there's a fight scene in the pirate's lair that is like the pirate's lair has this long, uh, almost like a, a, a balcony staircase with like two staircases that like kind of go up and meet each other on a rise yeah. with a t- with like a tall balcony on the on the top. And there's dudes getting kicked off of that, getting thrown off the balcony, landing on the stairs like hard where you could see their yeah. landing. It is it's pain. A, it is pain, pain, pain. Your next pick. <laughs> okay, so my second one is like this. I love Shaw Brothers movies, and I especially. Oh, yeah. I especially love in like the 80s when they started getting like really they they moved a little bit away from like the the kind of more serious like Bruce Lee inspired like historical stuff and there's this movie that I caught one time on TV that has become one of my favorite movies called Holy Flame of the Martial World and it is absolutely bonkers cuz it is like a full on fantasy movie 
And it's about a brother and sister who are seeking vengeance for the killing of their parents. Classic Hong Kong movie trope. (laughs) But they all have like superpowers, like Street Fighter style, Hadouken-esque. Like it's directed by Chunku Lu and it is just one of the wildest movies I've ever seen. It's definitely, it's probably my favorite Shaw Brothers movie, but I love like every Shaw Brothers movie. As soon as I see that logo come up, like Shaw Scope, I'm just like, I'm in a happy place. But that one I would definitely seek out because it is like, it's trippy. It definitely has big everything everywhere all at once vibes actually because they're just mixing so many genres and so many brilliant practical effects. But that one is like a, that's a standout for me. I love that. I I was watching like a Shaw Brothers slash Hong Kong action film documentary and they were talking to Cynthia Rothrock about one of her pictures, early pictures. Um, it might have been the magic crystal, but I forget what. And she was like saying how they were just like, okay, you come in and you just look up here. Okay. And then she didn't. And then later she saw the movie and she realized like she was looking up at a UFO. She's like, I wish somebody <laughs> would have told me that that's what I was looking at. <laughs> Time's money, uh, baby. Time's money. Time is money. You got to do this quick. Okay. Uh, my next pick. God, this is so hard. So hard. I'm not going to pick another Jackie Chan movie. I am going to pick. Okay, this is my, this was my unwittingly kind of my introduction to Hong Kong cinema for real. It is John Woo's The Killer. Uh Um, I, they were playing it like on Showtime or Cinemax, like late at night, like 1, 2 a.m. And I caught it just some random evening. I had no idea. I didn't know who John Woo was. I didn't know about this new emerging style of, of, uh, Asian action film that has been labeled since Gung Fu, which is like take away the swords and the and the two-handed fighting of like Kung Fu movies, put two Beretta pistols mm-hmm. in the hands of your uh, protagonist. Because it's and John some Woo, doves baby. flying majestically, <laughs> and you have Gung Fu. Um, the killer, it is, you know, another classic Hong Kong action setup. You have a, a assassin who has uh, uh, accidentally in in the in the course of carrying out a hit has blinded an innocent woman and he's guilt ridden by this and he then is like I gotta put everything I gotta I gotta I gotta atone for mm-hmm. my sins and then he ends up having this kind of um, like. Uh, you know, like opposites attract uh, a friendship bond with a cop and together the two of them take out, I don't know, hundreds of bad guys. Like The body count is like hundreds more of, than Jason. Like they, The body <laughs> count is so absurd in this film. And I had never seen anything like it at the time. Yeah, it's you know, unbelievable like, to watch. I was like. I, I don't know, like 12 or 13 or whatever the first time I saw it. And I was like, this is so crazy. I have never seen anything like this. And to this day, it's just one of the most fun. There's a scene in which um, the assassin and uh, and the cop are, they're in the house of, uh, of the, uh, the woman who has been blinded, right? And they have guns on each other in a classic setup that, that would then be ripped off a million times mm-hmm. by a million other directors, including like Quentin Tarantino and others. And they are like in this, in this standoff, like guns drawn. And she has no idea because they're playing it off. Like everything's fine. And it is such a super fun scene. You realize like where a lot of the stuff from like face off came yep. from anyway, the killer 
just phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal movie. I was going to say, like, if you like John Wick, if you like even like The Matrix, you know, things like that. Like, that's one of those movies where you watch it and you're going to be like, oh, my God. Yes. Okay. This is so hard. Okay, but I'm going by pure enjoyment. So don't like. Yeah, pure enjoyment. That's fine. I would say once upon a time in China, people will say that's a top three. So I'm going to go. This is very, uh, this is very true of, this is very true to my taste. So my number one, this is the one that I watch. This is the one where when I'm on a plane, I download it onto my iPad so I can watch (laughs) it. And I actually was once on a plane to a set visit and I had an old grandma sitting next to me and uh, and, and she ended up watching it with me and she was so into it. And and this is Return to the 36th Chamber. Oh, hell yeah. Starring the absolute icon, Gordon Liu, in one of the most outrageously meta plot lines of all time. So it is part of the 36th Chamber series, tangentially. And uh, it is, in this movie, Gordon Liu plays a scammer who is pretending to be the monk that he plays in the 36th Chamber movie. So he is like, it's so meta and silly. And um, it is also one of my favorite things about Hong Kong movies that American action movies never, ever have ever caught on to. It's a union movie. It's a movie about workers rising up against their terrible bosses who are working this dying factory. And it is just, it's so silly and so funny. And Gordon Liu's one of the best martial artists who ever lived. He's absolutely incredible. And he's so charming. And it has this end scene, the end fight scene where he wants to learn how to become a martial artist so he's been at the school and they just keep making him do scaffolding like they keep making him work they won't let him actually you know learn anything and in the end he has a scaffolding fight where he he's using the scaffolding poles and using what he saw in the school and it's like one of the most unbelievable things i've ever seen i watch it so much it makes me so happy when i watch it it's like a great pick Oh, I, I love Gordon Liu so much and I, I love these movies, but this is the one where I just think that's so clever. Like I would love to see, it's like having a Marvel movie and then you have like a, a sequel to the Marvel movie where like to- Robert Downey Jr. is playing someone who just looks like Tony Stark pretending to be yeah. him. It's so silly, but it's it's done so well. And that to me is like a peak. That's like the peak of, of, the, of the Shaw Brothers stuff. Ah, uh, I am going to pick... For my final pick, my number one movie, I've I thought about going outside the box, and this is kind of like a consensus. I think a lot of people might pick this, but I'm going to pick it anyway because this is my introduction to Jackie Chan. That wasn't one of the Cannonball Run movies. The, whatever the Cannonball Run movie is that Jackie Chan appears in, that's the first time I ever saw Jackie Chan. I didn't know who he was. This is the first time I watched a Jackie Chan movie and realized this is like a star who I never even knew existed and has been working in this other world, uh, you know, on the other side of the earth. Uh, it is a police story. Yeah, uh, of course. The, I mean, 1985 police story, uh, Jackie Chan as a, a, a cop who has to take down like drug dealers and protect a witness. It is, I think, one of the greatest action movies legitimately of all time ever it it the set the opening set piece of this movie is like the climax of most other action movies <laughs> and they're like, just like this is just the open this is the cold this open. is the opening <laughs> this is the opening like eight minutes of the movie is any other movie's climax like they yeah. destroy legitimately destroy an entire fucking town on the side of a hill 
And then it keeps going. Um, it just some of the greatest fights, some of the greatest action, um, a, a, a famous stunt in the climax of this movie, which takes place in a mall that was later ripped off for uh, the Sylvester Stallone uh, a, a movie Tango and Cash. It is just <laughs> like a great, 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 all time great movie Jackie Chan break dances and moonwalks in it at one point to get dog poop off his shoe. It's just like a great, great yeah, film think- that gives you everything that Jackie Chan has. And the Criterion Collection has a wonderful like uh, 4K restoration of this movie that if, if you want to get like a, a great version of this movie and have it in a in a uh, actual like hard media version, mm-hmm. that's a great way to go. Just one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I, I think that's the movie that a lot of people think about when you say Hong Kong cinema as well, yeah. especially in the, in the terms of Jackie Chan. And actually, I'm glad you brought up the Criterion because we're in a really lovely phase now where this stuff's getting recognized. Criterion yeah, did I love an that. unbelievable Bruce Lee collection recently, very yes. overdue, but absolutely brilliant with just unbelievable amounts of great restorations, but also incredible special features. One of the best things that I own, the Arrow video actually just did a Shaw Brothers collection too, which is much earlier Shaw Brothers stuff really serious martial arts like some movies i hadn't even seen which is kind of rare for me and once upon a time in china as well the trilogy just got a criterion box set i believe so i'm really glad that we're in a time where these movies are being seen for the cinematic impact that they have because like you say jackie chan is like a legend Legend, he is a legend globally and not just that he's like he he still runs a stunt school where he trains these unbelievable stunt teams who work with him and he trains the next generation of action stars. And that's like a, that's a legacy aside from just the hundreds of incredible roles that he's had. And if had. you, if you pick up that Criterion version, some of the DVD extras include a documentary where Jackie takes you through his stunt school, shows you how he works with his, uh, with his stunt performers and how they create these unbelievable scenes. Really fun. Okay. Uh, that's it for the end game. Who would you have picked? What movies would you have selected? Hit us up at hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your picks. Big thank you to the Daniels and, of course, the ever great Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, plugs, plugs, keep plugging. What do you got uh, to yes, plug? Yes, you can. If you like Easter eggs and all that kind of stuff, I do them at yeah. every week at Nerdist. I, do, I dig in deep into those eggs, lots of comic book stuff that you can read on there. Uh, I also am at Instagram Rosie Marks and Letterboxd where I've been watching some extremely bad movies. Usually it's just like, (laughs) usually they're like subjective where I'm like, I think they're good, but I've been on a tear of bad network broadcast movies while I work. Um, I'm going to have a Godzilla comic coming out. It should be coming out in June. We're going to talk about it more. Uh, You will be able to pre-order it soon. Not right now, but as soon as you can, I will tell you. Hey, Jason's wearing his Godzilla shirt in support. The big That's boy. right. Let's go. Um, you know what? I, I will plug. This is just to continue. So there was a 2021 Mortal Kombat movie. It's it's very campy, <laughs> right? It's, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. I it's get it. But it's I will say the kid who plays Kung Lao is called Max Huang. He's an incredible martial artist. And he trained under Jackie from when he was a little kid at the stunt school. And this was like his first role that wasn't a stunt role. And that kind of shows you the... The, the the caliber of martial artists that they went out yes. of their way to find for that movie. And I, I just think Max is, is such a great martial artist and he's done so much work for the stunt community as someone who promotes like safe fighting and good fighting in movies. And it was nice to see him get like a leading role. So if you want to go watch that on HBO Max, it's very fun. And it also has incredible 
uh, Liu Kang casting because Liddy Lin is like so perfect. So those two together are definitely the highlight. Let's also of- add in the in the extended uh, X Ray Vision family, Cody Zig Ziglar's oh. uh, Spider Punk number one. It's, it's out a, now, it, baby. Listen, do you like? Spider people, do you like people with spider powers? There's never been a better time in the Marvel Comics universe for multiple spider-powered people. And here we have Hobie Brown, the ever-exciting spider-punk in his own solo title, written by Cody Ziegler uh, with Justin oh. Mason and, and Jim Cheryl Pittis. It's, it's so it's good. Fun stuff, if, you love, if you love Spider-Man, if you love punk music, if you know Misfits lyrics, That's right. it has the final page of that comic i yelled when i read it it is so funny it's so good the letters are unbelievable it's travis lanham i believe like the whole team is just killing it it's an anti-fascist punk spider-man book and it is just badass like i'm so proud to say that we know zig because that comic is just it's it's one of the best first issues in a long time I completely agree. Uh, the icon Oliver uh, Copiel is on the cover. <laughs> like, yeah, baby. The okay, best. well, that's, listen, that's it for us. Check out our videos on the Uncultured YouTube channel. Catch the next episode on April 15th. And again, send your nerd out submissions to x-ray at crooked.com. Don't forget, rate and review us. Five-star ratings everywhere. People give us the five-star ratings. We absolutely love them. We thrive on them. They make us feel great. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dellen Villanueva and Matt DeGroot provide video production support. And Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Bye! Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.